0: We read the Holy Scriptures together this morning in Matthew chapter 8. We're going to read the first 17 verses of the chapter. Please pay special attention to verses 5 through 13. When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will, be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus saith unto him, See thou tell no man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion, beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, Do this, And he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. And when Jesus was come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laid and sick of a fever. And he touched her hand, and the fever left her and she arose and ministered unto them and when the even was come they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by isaiah the prophet saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses we read the word of god that far this morning Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, when our Savior came down from that mountain in Galilee in which he had preached his famous Sermon on the Mount, we're told in the chapter that we read that great multitudes followed him and beheld his mighty works. That was simply a continuation of what had been going on before the Sermon on the Mount. We can read of that in Matthew chapter 4 at the end of that chapter, that just before he went up into the mountain, Jesus had already been traveling here and there throughout Galilee and Judea and other places, and great multitudes were following him, so that his fame went abroad throughout the land, for he cast out demons. And he healed people with all different kinds of sicknesses and diseases, including those who were sick of the palsy, like the man in our text. But then after Jesus came down from the mountain, the same thing continued to happen. The great multitudes followed him. He continued to perform many mighty works. Jesus performed so many wondrous miracles in his ministry on earth that some would later come to ask rhetorically, according to John 7, verse 31, When Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? In other words, surely this man must be the Christ. In John 5, verse 36, Jesus explained the purpose of these miracles many wondrous miracles, the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. These mighty miracles of Christ reveal and testify that the Father truly sent him into the world to be the Savior And these many wondrous works of Christ, all of his many miracles, demonstrate that in Christ, God is fulfilling the great promises of old to bring salvation to his people and to bring the great renewal of the whole creation until the great day when he will make the new heavens and the new earth in which there will be no more sickness and no more disease, no more sin or suffering. No more Satan, no more death. When Jesus came down from that unknown mountain in Galilee, we are told in our text that he entered into the city of Capernaum. That was a city on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, and it was a city where Jesus performed many of his mighty works. As Jesus came into the city, we are told that a centurion came to him beseeching him to come to his house and to heal his servant who was sick of the palsy and grievously tormented. Now, there is a parallel account of this miracle in Luke chapter 7. In Luke 7, we have to see, in harmony with Matthew 8, the whole story of what happened that day. According to Luke, the centurion himself did not personally go to Jesus, but the centurion sent the elders of the Jews of Capernaum to Jesus. So the centurion came to Jesus through the elders of the city. We read in Luke 7, When he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. This man was a centurion, and many of us know that a centurion was a Roman commander of about 100 soldiers. This man was stationed in the city of Capernaum in Galilee. Therefore, he was a Gentile, not a Jew like the majority of the people living in that area. And therefore, the faith of the centurion, as Jesus indicates, was a sign of the dawning of a new day in which the Gentiles would be gathered into the covenant and kingdom of God. Because this centurion was stationed in Capernaum, he was under the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas, who was the ruler of Galilee at that time. But unlike wicked Herod, this centurion had a great love for the Jewish people. The elders of the Jews spoke of that when they came to Jesus, according to Luke 7. They besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this, for he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. This centurion, in his love for the Jews, had built a synagogue for them in Capernaum. Now he sends the elders to Jesus with the urgent plea to come, and heal his servant, sick of the palsy. Let's consider together this morning this wonderful work of Christ under the theme, Jesus is healing of a believing centurion's servant. Notice first the great faith of the centurion. Secondly, that it was a sign of many more Gentiles to come. and Finally, the healing of the paralyzed servant. In the passage that we consider this morning, the Holy Spirit is depicting before our eyes in a very striking manner that true and genuine faith in Jesus Christ by which alone we and those who are dear to us can be saved from our sins and from our spiritual sicknesses and the grievous torment that we deserve for them. The faith of the centurion is on display in the text. The Holy Spirit depicts that faith to us through the actions and the words of the centurion, first of all, but then also through the response of Jesus to his actions and words. For Jesus says in the text, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Notice, first of all, the actions of the centurion that revealed his faith. The centurion came to Jesus. Coming to Jesus is an action that arises out of faith. It is an act of faith. He sent the elders of the Jews to Jesus. He came to Jesus, beseeching him to heal his servant, to lay at home sick of the palsy. This servant of the centurion, Luke tells us, was very dear unto him. This was a very beloved servant to the centurion, but the servant was sick, grievously sick with a disease called the palsy. He was tormented as he lay on his bed in the house of the centurion, writhing in the pain of that sickness and we are told even that he was edging closer and closer to death he was ready to die the sickness known as the palsy in the king james version was a sickness of the nervous system it was a disease that afflicted the brain or the spinal cord of that young man possibly even a young boy That particular disease rendered the boy paralyzed, and that's literally the meaning of the word in the Greek. He was paralyzed. He was unable to walk, unable to move. He could not get up from his bed. He was laid low, and there he lay on his bed, day after day, in the pain of his sickness. But he was not only paralyzed, he was also dying. This sickness was so grievously tormenting him that it was driving him to the very brink of death. And therefore, the sickness of the servant was a striking picture of our spiritual condition by nature. As the children of Adam and Eve, our first parents, we are by nature spiritually sick Spiritually tormented with the disease that is like the palsy of that servant. We are born into this world spiritually paralyzed, spiritually unable to walk, unable to move a single step toward the kingdom of God, unable to walk with God in his covenant, unable to do anything good, anything right, only able to sin only able to disobey all of his commandments, totally corrupt and depraved. And that spiritual paralysis of soul and mind and body that we have by nature renders us grievously tormented with the consequences of our sins. That we experience life in a fallen, cursed world, in the sufferings of this present time, which involve all kinds of pain and sorrow and discouragement, and disappointment, so that we writhe sometimes in the pain of sickness, and loss, and loneliness, and all kinds of infirmities. As the baptism formula tells us, this life is nothing but a continual death. As we, fallen sinners, edge closer and closer to the brink of death, and therefore the sickness... Of the young servant boy. Reveals our spiritual condition. And his master the centurion felt utterly helpless. Utterly powerless. There was nothing he could do to save this dear boy. Whom he loved so much. As he watched him waste away from day after day. In his sickness. And therefore he looked to Jesus. He heard that Jesus had come to town. And he sent the elders of the Jews to Jesus with the urgent plea that he would come to his house and heal his servant. Believing that he was able to do it. This coming of the centurion to Jesus was a revelation of his great faith. The faith that God gave to the centurion, because that faith was the gift of God to him, was not an irrational setting aside of reason. It was not a blind leap of faith. It was not a blind grasping after a man whose power could not be proven. That's how many describe the faith of us Christians. It's irrational, it's blind, it's a grasping after things that you cannot prove, that are not real. But that's not what faith is. And that was not the faith of the centurion. The great faith that God gives to his people, in the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, is first of all a certain knowledge whereby we hold for truth all that God has revealed to us. It is a grasping hold of something that makes sense. Something that is rational. Something that is reasonable. Because God has revealed it to us. God has told us what is true. What is real. And by faith we grasp hold of it as true and certain. And it is not only a certain knowledge, but also an assured, hearty, And sincere confidence in Jesus. Because what God reveals to us as true is nothing less than Jesus himself. God presents to us Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the truth. And this great faith is a laying hold upon Christ. Putting our confidence in Christ. Sincerely, personally, and assuredly. It is a putting of confidence in Christ that he has come into the world not only to save others, but also me and those dear to me, my loved ones in my house. That's what the centurion believed. That's the faith that he possessed that God gave to him. He believed that this Jesus, who was reportedly walking through the streets of Capernaum at this very moment, had come into the world not just to save others, But also to save him and those dear to him. Now, how in the world did this Gentile centurion have such great faith? Well, the scriptures teach us that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith is worked in the heart not in some mystical manner. Totally apart from the gospel and the word of God. But faith comes through the hearing of the gospel. And this centurion had heard the gospel. As we saw in our introduction, both before and after that great sermon on the mount, the gospel had been going forth. The news had been spreading throughout Galilee and Judea that Christ has come. The Messiah is here. And Jesus is his name. He is the Savior whom God has promised from the beginning of time. He is the Lord who has come to save us from our sins. And the centurion heard that good news. Perhaps the centurion heard the glorious report that just a short time before this event, a nobleman from Capernaum, from the very same town of Capernaum. A nobleman whom he probably knew because he was also an official under the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas, and he was also stationed in Capernaum. This nobleman had gone to meet Jesus in Cana of Galilee, having heard that Jesus was there. And the nobleman who came to Jesus had begged him that Jesus Would heal his son who was grievously sick with a fever back in Capernaum. And Jesus, without even going to Capernaum from Cana of Galilee, had healed his son from afar. So that the nobleman went back to his hometown and found that that very hour in which he had spoken to Jesus, his son was healed of the fever. Those mighty works of Christ were spreading throughout the towns of Galilee. And that mighty miracle, no doubt, came to the ears of the centurion as well in Capernaum. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. The centurion heard the word of God, that Jesus of Nazareth has demonstrated through his many mighty works that he is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. He is our only hope. And so he sent the elders to him by faith, begging him to come, to save. You have heard the word of the gospel. All of you gathered here this morning have heard the word of Christ. Most, if not all of you, have heard it many, many times. Do you believe it? Do you have the same great faith of the centurion? As you have heard the gospel of Jesus, who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, he is the Savior, he is real, he is the truth, he is the way of salvation. Do you believe in him? Do you cling to him as your only hope in life and in death? Do you come to him as the centurion did? But the action of the centurion that made Jesus marvel and what Jesus found to be so great about the faith of the centurion was how he responded when Jesus came. You see, when the elders came to Jesus and they begged him to come and to heal the servant of the centurion, and they told Jesus that the man was worthy of this great deed because he loves our nation and he has built us a synagogue, and Jesus said, I will come and heal him. And Jesus began to follow them to the house of the centurion. Those elders must have run ahead of Jesus back to the house and told the centurion, Jesus is coming. He's coming to heal your servant. And then Luke tells us, the centurion sent his friends forth to meet Jesus on his way to the house. And to say to Jesus, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof. But speak the word only. And my servant shall be healed. Or, to use the words in Luke, he said this, Neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee. I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you in person and in the flesh. But I sent the elders to you. Just speak the word, Lord. Don't even come under the roof of my house. I'm not worthy of that. Just speak the word and my servant will be healed. Those words of the centurion are what evoked from Jesus that response of marveling and saying, I have not found such great faith. No, not in Israel. Notice two striking things about the response of the centurion there. And in those two striking things, the Holy Spirit is teaching us about the nature of true sincere faith in the Lord Jesus Christ first. The centurion's acknowledgement that he was not worthy for Jesus to come under his roof. It doesn't matter who you are. You might be a centurion. You might be a commander of a hundred well-trained Roman soldiers. Machines of warfare trained to destroy the enemy. You might be a man of great authority. A man of great power. You might be wealthy. You might own a business. You might be an employer of many people who all day long, day after day, in that position of power and authority is directing people here and directing people there. You might be an elder in the church. You might be a pastor. You might be a professor of theology. It doesn't matter who you are. The true believer acknowledges, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to have God come into my house. I'm not worthy to have Christ, the Lord, come under my roof into my home, into my family, because I'm a sinful man. Because I have broken the commandments of God. Every one of them. And I still fall back continually into my sin. I think of Peter, who on more than one occasion said, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. I'm not worthy. That was the acknowledgement of the centurion. A centurion! And Jesus, poor, walking around in sandals from town to town, having no place to lay his head. Even the foxes had holes But he didn't have anywhere to lay his head. And yet, this great, powerful, wealthy man says, I'm not worthy for Jesus to come into my house. Do you believe that about yourself? And then in the second place, although the believer understands that he's not worthy for God to come under his roof, Indeed, that there's nothing that I can do. There's nothing I can say to earn the presence of Christ. Nevertheless, he knows his need for the presence of Christ. He knows how desperately he needs Christ to come to him. To save him. And so he looks to Christ. And believes that Christ has the power. By merely speaking the word to heal him and all of his loved ones of their sicknesses and diseases. The centurion put it so memorably like this. He said, for I am a man under authority too, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goeth. And to that man, come, and he cometh. And to this servant, do it, and he doeth it. I know what it means to be a man of power and authority. And now he acknowledges, you are the man Of greatest power and authority. Whereas I am able to say to men under my authority. To go and to come and to do this and that. You are able to speak and to command the very forces of nature. The very sicknesses of the body. That was a great faith. He didn't think that Jesus needed to come and perform some special rituals or to touch his servant or do anything to him whatsoever. He believed that all he has to do is from a distance, speak the word. Just speak the word, Lord, and my servant shall be healed. That was what caused Jesus to marvel and to say, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. Do you believe that as well? Do you believe that Christ, far away, earthly speaking, in heaven at the right hand of God, only has to speak the word, and he can send away all your sins? He only has to speak the word and he can send away all of your spiritual sicknesses. All of the sins that easily and constantly beset you. You believe that by the word of Christ he can send it away. He can heal you. He can restore you. And ultimately give you everlasting life. Then we take note of something amazing that Jesus said. Something that might have sounded strange to the ears of the Jews, but ought not to have sounded strange. He said, And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west, and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, In the kingdom of heaven. I have not found so great faith. Not in Israel. And I say unto you. Many shall come from the east and the west. And sit down. With the Jews. There Jesus is recognizing. That this centurion was a Gentile. A Roman. Who was not born and raised. There in Capernaum. There in Galilee. Who had not grown up going to church, going to synagogue, going to the temple, observing the feasts, but probably was born and raised far away in Rome or some province of Rome, worshipping the idols of Rome and paying his homage to Caesar. That's how he grew up. And yet, from all eternity, God had chosen this man And through the Holy Spirit, he had regenerated him. And through the hearing of the gospel, he had worked faith in his heart. Great faith in Jesus Christ. And caused him to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that was a very unusual thing in those days. Very unusual. Because for many centuries... God had been pleased to gather his people into the covenant of grace in the lines of continued generations from the Jews. And almost exclusively from the Jews. And yet, this ought not to have been a strange word of Jesus. Because the Jews also knew their scriptures which prophesied in many, many places that the day was coming when God would open the door of his covenant and kingdom so that those from all nations of the world would flow into Zion. Moses, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and many other writers had expressed the promise of the Lord to gather in all nations into his church in the great day of Christ. Indeed, God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob themselves that he would make Abraham a father of many nations and in Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And he would multiply his seed as the sand of the seashore and the stars of the heaven innumerable. Jesus is simply repeating the great promises and prophecies of old. And at this occasion, Jesus observing the great faith that God had given to the centurion, he expresses that this is the sign, this is a sign of the dawning of that great and glorious day that God has prophesied from ancient times. When the covenant will not be narrowly limited to the Jews, but expanded And opened to all nations. Many shall come, he says, from the east and the west. This centurion is no longer the exception. In the old dispensation, there was a Rahab. There was a Ruth. There was a Naaman. And those were exceptions. The centurion is no longer an exception. The centurion is a sign of the dawning of the new day in which God would gather to himself all nations. This is the dawning of the day of the new and last age of history. The age in which we still live. Age which will continue until Christ returns. Many shall come, he says. Many shall come from the east. And so he directs the attention of his listeners to the east. Yes, yes. From the east, from Persia and Babylon and India and China and the Philippines. All those great nations with their millions of people in the east and from the west. Turn your attention to the Mediterranean. Many shall come from Greece and from Italy and Spain and France and Britain. And those far away undiscovered lands of America. Many shall come from the west. Many shall come from the east they will come when they hear the preaching of the gospel of the Savior Jesus Christ. And when the Spirit moves them to a living faith, they will come and sit down with the great patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their physical descendants, the believing Jews. They will sit down together around one table, Jews and Gentiles, bond and free, rich and poor, out of all the nations, and dine together in the kingdom of God for all eternity. They will drink together at the banquet of the supper of the Lamb for all eternity in the everlasting covenant. The one God, the maker of heaven and earth, is not just the God of the Jews, but also of the Gentiles, of black and white, brown, and red of every nation under heaven. Jesus announces that this prophecy now is coming true. And this prophecy of Jesus has been coming true since the day he spoke it. For the last two millennia, Christ has raised up missionaries beginning in Jerusalem, to go to the east, to go to the west, to go into the nations, and at the risk of their own lives, to preach the gospel through the word of those missionaries. And through the word as it was echoed forth by all the ordinary believers in their daily lives, Christ has gathered from the east and the west The Gentiles, including our ancestors, including us and our children, into the kingdom of heaven. The prophecies of the Old Testament and the words of Jesus in our text, we must understand are the foundation of missions. The biblical and theological foundation of the mission of the church throughout this entire New Testament time is in these words, as they are in connection with all the great prophecies before. Why do we send missionaries? Why must we send missionaries? Why must we evangelize in our communities? Why must we witness to our neighbors? Because it is the good pleasure of God to gather into his kingdom from the east and the west, from all nations and kindreds and tribes and tongues, his elect people. Into the kingdom of God. And therefore when we send out missionaries. And when we engage in personal and church evangelism. Let us not do that in a timid and pessimistic way. Thinking that no one will care. No one will come. No one will listen. Nobody wants the gospel today. We ought not to expect to see any results. That's unbelief. Because the Lord Jesus himself tells us here in the text, many shall come. Many shall come. We don't know when and where and how those many will come. But we know that they will come. And they will come through the mission of the church. And so we send out our missionaries. And we speak to our neighbors with a confident, optimistic hope that the Lord will use weak means to gather his people into the church. And yet, we also have to understand the full truth. Because the Lord Jesus immediately adds, verse 12, But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When he speaks of the children of the kingdom, he obviously does not mean the elect. But what he means is, first of all, in the context in which he said it, those Jews Who thought of themselves as children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Merely because they were physically so. Merely because they were circumcised. Merely because they were born Jews. And grew up in the Jewish nation. And observed the Jewish customs and the Jewish laws. So that they believed themselves to be worthy of it. Because of their own righteousness. Because of their own works. We can easily see that Jesus does not limit it only to the Jews who thought like that. But to anyone who thinks like that. To the Gentiles, too, who think that just because I was baptized in this church, I was catechized in this church, I was raised in this church. I, I walk in the customs of my fathers. I believe. The teachings of my fathers. I am reformed. I am Protestant reformed. That because of that. I am worthy. Of being in the kingdom. And I am worthy of righteousness. And worthy of eternal life. I am worthy to sit down at that table. And to dine for all eternity with God. If we only pay lip service to Jesus. then the warning of the text comes to us too. Take heed unto yourself. Jesus also says that many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do great things in thy name? Did we not cast out demons? And did we not heal the sick? And did we not walk in your paths? And did we not attend your church? And he will not argue with them, but he will simply say, I don't know you, and I have never known you. Jesus extends this warning to us who were born and raised in the community of the covenant. Take heed to yourselves, whether you are in the faith. Do you trust in Jesus Christ alone? In your heart of hearts. As your righteousness before God. As the way to the Father. As your only hope in life and death. And your only comfort in body and soul. Those who say that they do but who do not, do not in their hearts. Take heed. Because our Lord here speaks of that dreadful reality of everlasting damnation that those who call themselves children of the kingdom but are not will be cast out into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth our lord jesus more than anyone else spoke of the reality of hell and he describes hell as a place of outer darkness outside of the kingdom outside of that glorious, well-lit banquet hall, where the children of the kingdom will dine for all eternity. It's the darkness. And being cast into that darkness, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Repent. And turn from your sin and cling to Christ the Savior of sinners. Because Christ has given himself into the hands of the living God. Christ has done that fearful thing for us. Taken upon himself our sicknesses and infirmities, our dreadful spiritual diseases and guilt, He has taken it all upon himself. As Matthew goes on to say in this chapter in fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. He took on himself our infirmities and our sicknesses on the cross. And he descended into hell. Into the outer darkness. And there, in weeping and gnashing of teeth, perished eternally for us. And then rose from the dead. Believe in him. Having heard the great faith of the centurion, Jesus said to his friends, Go back into the house and tell him, As thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. So be it done unto thee. Notice Jesus didn't say, because you have believed. Jesus did not say, oh no, centurion, you are worthy because you believed. It's not true what you say that you're not worthy. You are worthy. You have made yourself worthy. You have made yourself to differ because you believed. No, Jesus acknowledges what the centurion says about his unworthiness and says, not because you believe, but as you have believed. By faith. The faith that God himself gives to those whom he has chosen. We are saved. By faith. As thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And that same hour, the servant was healed from his sickness. The boy, who day after day was lying there, unable to move a muscle, suddenly felt that sickness from his body. All at once. It departed from his body. And he felt in his fingers. Strength return. In his arms. In his legs. In his neck. In all of his limbs. Strength. Strength. I'm able to move. I'm able to sit up. I'm able to stand up. Can we imagine the joy. And the astonishment. That must have filled his heart as he received the salvation from the hand and mouth of Christ. And the centurion as he beheld his beloved boy. Standing up, sitting up, jumping up. What a confirmation. That Jesus was indeed the Christ. Savior of sinners. This miracle of our Lord was a wonder of grace that points us to his power to save us. Us spiritually paralyzed sinners, spiritually unable to move a muscle, unable to walk with God, unable to take a single step toward the kingdom. It points to the spiritual power of Christ who died and rose again So that we might be healed of our spiritual paralysis. Who took our paralysis on himself at the cross. And suffered and died for it. And arose with life and strength and power to bestow upon us. Through the wonder of regeneration and justification and sanctification. And now through the preaching of the gospel. He says to us from his place at the right hand of God. He simply says to us the word of salvation. As thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. You, child of God, you who believe, you who cling to him and trust in him and embrace Christ, so be it done unto you. Be healed of your sickness and infirmity. Be healed of your disease. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Be forgiven of all your sins and all of your guilt and receive the righteousness of Christ by faith and be sanctified. Be holy as He is holy. Walk in all of His commandments. Walk in His ways. Put aside your sin. Lay it down at the cross. Lay it down before the Savior who loved you and gave Himself for you and sin no more. He doesn't condemn you. He doesn't destroy you. He loves you. He has healed you. And he will heal you until the work is finished. Put your trust in him. For righteousness and for holiness. For deliverance from guilt and for deliverance from the enslaving power of sin. The diseases of sin. How can I be free from this bondage, this This spiritual sickness. This sin that I continue to fall into day after day and week after week. Not by trying harder. Not by praying harder. Not by doing more good works. Not by coming to church more faithfully. But by faith. In Jesus Christ. Believe in Him. And he will say to you, as thou hast believed, so be it done unto you. And so the miracle, as all of the wonderful works of Christ, gives us hope. Points us forward to the great day when the Lord Jesus will once and for all finally take away All of our indwelling spiritual sicknesses and diseases. Our grievous sufferings. Our shame. And take us at last into that glorious, beautiful, well-lit banquet hall of the kingdom of heaven. To sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the saints eat and drink the blessings of salvation forever and ever. May that day come quickly. Amen. Our gracious and merciful God, we give thee thanks for the gospel of the mighty works of Christ. May we cleave to him by faith And may we receive through the certainty of faith and the confidence of faith all the blessings, the healing, the forgiveness that our souls so desperately need. And we pray and plead with thee, Father, too that the word of Christ will speak for the healing and salvation of those dear to us. As the centurion in love for his servant, reached out to Christ. We pray also heal and save our children, our loved ones, and those who are dear to us in our lives. Heal them, deliver them from their sicknesses and infirmities, their spiritual maladies, and bring them to the Savior. And may we all walk, O God, in the strength of faith, and in the power of his might. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.